Book Two, Chapter Nineteen of Robert Falconer by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Robert Falconer by George MacDonald. Chapter Nineteen. Robert meditates. One lovely evening in the first of the summer, Miss St. John had dismissed him earlier than usual, and he had wandered out for a walk. After a round of a couple of miles, he returned by a fir wood, through which went a pathway. He had heard Mary St. John say that she was going to see the wife of a labourer who lived at the end of this path. In the heart of the trees it was growing very dusky, but when he came to a spot where they stood away from each other a little space, and the blue sky looked in from above, with one cloud floating in it from which the rose of the sunset was fading, he seated himself on a little mound of moss that had gathered over an ancient stump by the footpath, and drew out his friend's papers. Absorbed in his reading, he was not aware of an approach till the rustle of silk startled him. He lifted up his eyes and saw Miss St. John a few yards from him on the pathway. He rose. "'It's almost too dark to read now, isn't it, Robert?' she said. "'Ah,' said Robert. I know this writing so well that I could read it by moonlight. I wish I might read some of it to you. You would like it. May I ask whose it is, then? Poetry, too. It's Mr. Erickson's, but I'm feared he would not like me to read it to anybody but myself, and yet... I don't think he would mind me, returned Miss St. John. I do know him a little. It is not as if I were quite a stranger, you know. Did he tell you not? no but then he never thought of such a thing i don't know if it's fair for they are carelessly written and there are words and lines here and there that i am sure he would alter if he cared for them then if he doesn't care for them he won't mind my hearing them there she said seating herself on the stump you sit down on the grass and read me one at least you'll remember they were never intended to be read urged robert not knowing what he was doing and so fulfilling his destiny i will be as jealous of his honour as ever you can wish answered miss st john gaily robert laid himself on the grass at her feet and read when the storm was proudest and the wind was loudest i heard the hollow caverns drinking down below when the stars were bright and the ground was white i heard the grasses springing underneath the snow many voices spake the river to the lake the iron-ribbed sky was talking to the sea and every starry spark made music with the dark and said how bright and beautiful everything must be that line ma'am remarked robert's only just scratted in as if he had no intention of leaving it and only set it there to keep room for another but we'll just go on with the love of it i ought not to have interrupted it when the sun was setting all the clouds were getting beautiful and silvery in the rising moon beneath the leafless trees wrangling in the breeze i could hardly see them for the leaves of june when the day had ended and the night descended i heard the sound of streams that i heard not through the day and every peak afar was ready for a star and they climbed and rolled around until the morning gray then slumber soft and holy came down upon me slowly and i went i know not whither and i lived i know not how my glory had been banished 
for when I woke it vanished, but I waited on its coming, and I am waiting now. There, said Robert, ending, can you make anything of that, Miss St. John? I don't say I can in words, she answered, but I think I could put it all into music. But surely ye maun have some notion of what it's about afore ye can do that. Yes, but I have some notion of what it's about, I think. Just lend it to me, and by the time we have our next lesson you will see whether I'm not able to show you I understand it. I shall take good care of it, she added, with a smile, seeing Robert's reluctance to part with it. It doesn't matter my having it, you know, now that you've read it to me. I want to make you do it justice. But it's quite time I were going home. Besides, I really don't think you can see to read any more. Well, it's better no to try, though I have them mostly upon my tongue. I might blunder, and that would blod them. Will you let me go home with you? he added in pure, tremulous English. Certainly, if you like, she answered, and they walked towards the town. Robert opened the fountain of his love for Ericsson and let it gush like a river from a hillside. He talked on and on about him with admiration, gratitude, devotion, and Miss St. John was glad of the veil of the twilight over her face as she listened, for the boy's enthusiasm trembled through her as the wind through an alien harp. Poor Robert, he did not know, I say, what he was doing, and so was fulfilling his sacred destiny. Bring your manuscripts when you come next, she said, as they walked along, gently adding, I admire your friend's verses very much and should like to hear more of them. I'll be sure and do that, answered Robert, in delight that he had found one to sympathize with him in his worship of Ericsson, and that one his other idol. When they reached the town, Miss St. John, calling to mind its natural propensity to gossip, especially on the evening of a market day when the shopkeepers, their labors over, would be standing in a speculative mood at their doors, surrounded by groups of friends and neighbors, felt shy of showing herself on the square with Robert, and proposed that they should part, giving as a by-the-by reason that she had a little shopping to do as she went home. Too simple to suspect the real reason, but with a heart that delighted in obedience, Robert bade her good night at once, and took another way. As he passed the door of Merson, the haberdasher's shop, there stood William MacGregor, the weaver, looking at nothing and doing nothing. We have seen something of him before. He was a remarkable compound of good nature and bad temper. People were generally afraid of him because he had a biting satire at his command, amounting even to wit, which found vent in verse. Not altogether despicable, even from a literary point of view. The only person he, on his part, was afraid of was his own wife, for upon her, from lack of apprehension, his keenest irony fell, as he said, like water on a duck's back, and in respect of her he had, therefore, no weapon of offence to strike terror withal. Her dullness was her defence. He liked Robert. When he saw him, he wakened up, laid hold of him by the button, and drew him in. Come in, lad, he said, and take a pinch. I'm waiting for Merson. As he spoke, he took from his pocket his mull made of the end of a ram's horn and presented it to robert who accepted the pledge of friendship while he was partaking macgregor drew himself with some effort upon the counter saying in a half comical half admonitory tone weel and who's the mathematics robert 
Driving, answered Robert, falling into his good humour. Weel, that's fair a weel. Dove ye mind, Robert, who, when ye was aboot the age of aught year old, ye came to me once at my shop aboot something your grandmother, honest woman, wanted, and I, by the way of taking my fun of ye, said to ye, Robert, ye have grown desperate, ye are a man clean, ye have gotten the breeks on, and says ye, I, Mr. McGregor, I want nothing new but a watch and a wife. I doot I've forgotten all about it, Mr. McGregor, answered Robert, but I've made some progress according to your story, for Dr. Anderson, afore I came home, gave me a watch, and a fine crater it is, for it I does its best, and say I excuse its shortcomings. There's just a thing and na another, returned the manufacturer, that I cannot excuse in a watch. If a watch gangs o'er fast, ye find oot. If she gangs o'er slow, ye find oot, and ye can I calculate upon it the correct enough for matters subluminary, as Mr. McCleary says. And if a watch stops altogether, ye can its failin, and ye can wear its sticks, and at ye says, tut tut devil have it for a watch but there's one thing that god nor man cannot bide in a watch and that's when it stands still for a bittock and sign goes on again ay ay tick 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 with a fair face and a lean heart it would gar ye believe it was all right and time for another tumbler when it's twelve o'clock and the kirkyard folk thinking about rising fags i had a watch of my father's and i regarded it with a reverence more like a human being the second time it played me that plisky i dang oot its inwards upon the lopin on stone at the door of the shop but let the watch sit where's the wife you cannot be a man yet wanting the wife by your own statement the watch came unsought mr macgregor and i'm thinking so mound the wife answered robert laughing preserve me for one from a wife that comes unsought returned the weaver but my lad there may be some wives that will not come when they are sought preserve me from them too no maybe ye do not ken what i mean but take ye tent what you're aboot do not ye think it ilka bonny lass at may like to hold a warp with ye's just ready to marry ye off hand when ye say no my daughty and i'll more word robert young men especially braw lads like yourselves unco ready to fall in love with women fit to be their mothers and so you see he was interrupted by the entrance of a girl she had a shawl over her head notwithstanding it was summer weather and crept in hesitatingly as if she were not quite at one with herself as to her coming purchase approaching a boy behind the counter on the opposite side of the shop she asked for something and he proceeded to serve her robert could not help thinking from the one glimpse of her face he had got through the dust that he had seen her before suddenly the vision of an earthen floor with a pool of brown sunlight upon it bare feet brown hair and soft eyes mingled with the musk odour wafted from arabian fairyland rose before him it was jessie hewson i know that lassie he said and moved to get down from the counter on which he too had seated himself nay nay whispered the manufacturer laying like the ancient mariner a brown skinny hand of restraint upon robert's arm nay nay never heed her ye mount not spake to ilka lass at ye know poor thing she's been doing something wrong to go on slinking aboot in the gloaming like a bat with her plaid o'er her head do not fash with her 
"'Nonsense,' returned Robert with indignation. "'What for should not I speak to her? "'She's a decent lassie, a daughter of James Hewson, "'the cotter of Bodyfold. I know her fine.' "'He said this in a whisper, but the girl seemed to hear it, "'for she left the shop with a perturbation "'which the dimness of the late twilight could not conceal. "'Robert hesitated no longer, but followed her, "'heedless of the latter expostulations of MacGregor.' She was speeding away down the street, but he took longer strides than she, and was almost up with her when she drew her shawl closer about her head and increased her pace. "'Jessie,' said Robert in a tone of expostulation, but she made no answer. Her head sunk lower on her bosom, and she hurried yet faster. He gave a long stride or two and laid his hand on her shoulder. She stood still, trembling. "'Jessie, did not you know me, Robert Faulkner?' "'Do not be feared at me. "'What's the matter with ye? Eh? "'You will not speak to the body. "'Who is all the folk at home?' "'She burst out crying, "'cast one look into Robert's face, and fled. "'What a change was in that face! "'The peach colour was gone from her cheek. "'It was pale and thin. "'Her eyes were hollow, "'with dark shadows under them, "'the shadows of a sad sunset. "'A foreboding of the truth arose in his heart, "'and the tears rushed up into his eyes. The next moment the thought of Mary St. John moving gracious and strong, clothed in worship and the dignity which is its own defense, appeared beside that of Jessie Hewson, her bowed head shaking with sobs, and her weak limbs urged to ungraceful flight. As if walking in the vision of an eternal truth, he went straight to Captain Forsyth's door. "'I want to speak to Miss St. John, I see,' said Robert. "'She'll be doing in a minute.' But is not your mistress in the drawing-room? I do not want to see her. Ah, will, said the girl, who was almost fresh from the country, just run up the stair and rap at the door of her room. With the simplicity of a child, for what a girl told him to do must be right, Robert sped up the stair, his heart going like a fire-engine. He had never approached Mary's room from this side, but instinct or something else led him straight to her door. He knocked. Come in, she said, never doubting it was the maid, and Robert entered. She was brushing her hair by the light of a chamber candle. Robert was seized with awe, and his limbs trembled. He could have kneeled before her, not to beg forgiveness, he did not think of that, but to worship, as a man may worship a woman. It is only a strong, pure heart like Robert's that ever can feel all the inroad of the divine mystery of womanhood. But he did not kneel. He had a duty to perform. A flush rose in Miss St. John's face and sank away, leaving it pale. It was not that she thought once of her own condition, with her hair loose on her shoulders, but able only to conjecture what had brought him thither, she could not but regard Robert's presence with dismay. She stood with her ivory brush in her right hand uplifted and a great handful of hair in her left. She was soon relieved, however, although, what with his contemplated intercession the dim vision of mary's lovely face between the masses of her hair and the lavender odour that filled the room perhaps also a faint suspicion of impropriety sufficient to give force to the rest robert was thrown back into the abyss of his mother tongue and out of this abyss talked like a behemoth robert said mary in a tone which had he not been so eager after his end he might have interpreted as one of displeasure you maun hearken to me, ma'am. When I was oot at Bodyfold, he began methodically, 
and Mary, bewildered, gave one hasty brush to her handful of hair, and again stood still. She could imagine no connection between this meeting and their late parting. When I was out at Bodyfold a uh, summer, I grew acquainted with the bonny lassie there, the daughter of James Houston, an honest cotter with Shakespeare and the Arabian Nights upon a shelf, the house within. I goed in one day when I was not will, and sh she just ministered to me, as none ever did but yourself, ma'am, and she was that kind and mother-like to the wee bit great and barony at she had to take care of, cause her mither was oot with the lave sharing. Her face was just like a simmer day, and will I like it the look of the lassie. I met her again the night. Ye never saw such a change, a white face, and nothing but great and to come out of her. She ran from me as if I had been the devil himself, and the thought of you, say Bonnie and Strock and Grand, came o'er me. Yielding to a masterful impulse, Robert did kneel now, as if a sinner and not mediator, he pressed the hem of her garment to his lips. Do not be angry at me, Miss St. John, he pleaded, but be merciful to the lassie. What's to help her that can no more look a man in the face but the clear-eyed lass that would look the sun himself out of the left if he dared to say a word against her? It's all woman that can uphold another. You ken what I mean, and I need not say more. He rose and turned to leave the room. Bewildered and doubtful, Miss St. John did not know what to answer, but felt that she must make some reply. You haven't told me where to find the girl, or what you want me to do with her. I'll find where she bides, he said, moving again towards the door. But what am I to do with her, Robert? That's your part. You may find what to do with her. I cannot tell you that, but if I was you, I would give her a kiss to begin with. She's none of your brazen-faced hizzies, yon. A kiss would be the saving of her. But you may be... But I have nothing to go upon. She would resent my interference. She's past resenting anything. She was going about the tune like one of the dead at have nothing to say to anybody, and nobody anything to say to them. If she goes on like that, she'll not be alive long. That night Jessie Hewson disappeared. A mile or two up the river, under a high bank, from which the main current had receded, lay an awful swampy place, full of reeds except in the middle, where was one round space full of dark water and mud. Near this Jessie Hewson was seen about an hour after Robert had thus fled for her with his angel. The event made a deep impression upon Robert. The last time that he saw them, James and his wife were as cheerful as usual, and gave him a hearty welcome. Jessie was in service and doing well, they said. The next time he opened the door of the cottage, it was like the entrance to a haunted tomb. Not a smile was in the place. James's cheeriness was all gone. He was sitting at the table with his head, leaning on his hand. His Bible was open before him, but he was not reading a word. His wife was moving listlessly about. They looked just as Jessie had looked that night, as if they had died long ago, but somehow or other could not get into their graves and be at rest. The child Jessie had nursed with such care was toddling about, looking rueful with loss. George had gone to America, and the whole of the family's joy had vanished from the earth. The subject was not resumed between Miss St. John and Robert. 
The next time he saw her, he knew, by her pale, troubled face, that she had heard the report that filled the town, and she knew by his silence that it had indeed reference to the same girl of whom he had spoken to her. The music would not go right that evening. Mary was distraught, and Robert was troubled. It was a week or two before there came a change. When the turn did come, over his being love rushed up like a springtide from the ocean of the infinite. He was accompanying her piano with his violin. He made blunders, and her playing was out of heart. They stopped as by consent, and a moment's silence followed. All at once she broke out with something Robert had never heard before. He soon found that it was a fantasy upon Ericsson's poem. Ever through a troubled harmony ran a silver thread of melody from far away. It was the caverns drinking from the tempest overhead, the grasses growing under the snow, the stars making music with the dark, the streams filling the night with the sounds the day had quenched, the whispering call of the dreams left behind in the fields of sleep, in a word the central life pulsing in aeonian peace through the outer ephemeral storms. At length her voice took up the theme, the silvery thread became song, and through all the opposing supporting harmonies she led it to the solution of a close in which the only sorrow was in the music itself, for its very life is in endless ending. She found Robert kneeling by her side. As she turned from the instrument, his head dropped over her knee. She laid her hand on his clustering curls, bethought herself, and left the room. Robert wandered out as in a dream. At midnight he found himself on a solitary hilltop, seated in the heather, with a few tiny fir leaves about him, and the sounds of a wind ethereal as the stars overhead flowing through their branches. He heard the sound of it, but it did not touch him. Where was God? In him and his question. End chapter 19